0: Hey, we are, uh, or rather we have been going through this series, The Peaks, um, where we've been seeing the Bible as one book with one overarching story. Uh, Of course, it is made up of many books, 66 books by a whole bunch of authors, and yet as we've gone through it, haven't we seen that God has been doing one great work throughout all of history and that he orchestrated the writing of one great book that shows us his work in the world and shows us his saving power. Uh, actually, maybe I'll, I'll pray for us, actually, before I continue on. Jesus, thank you for your word. God, we pray that as we come to Scripture today, uh, that you would speak to your people here, that you would challenge our hearts, that you would convict us of sin, that you would lead us to see the glory of our God more clearly, the wonder of your redemptive work, and the role that you have given us, leading us into being a people of the Messiah, people of the Redeemer. Please, Lord, uh, build us up today to go out and be your people. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so, yes, one book with one story. But so far in the story, uh, we've come, again, come up against some pretty significant problems for us, for people, haven't we? Uh, problems which uh, we see presented to us, actually, at the beginning of this just three-verse snippet of Colossians that we're looking at today. Uh, Paul writes, uh, well, he he summarizes uh, where we are without Jesus really, really briefly here. He, He calls us, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Dead in our trespasses, dead in our sin." Now, now, how often do we get to this part of the Bible? If you're a Bible reader, uh, which if you're a Christian, I hope you're a Bible reader because, you know, we, we find life when we come here. Um, how often do we get to this, though? And, and we read it for us just personally, right? Um, we go, all right, that's, that's true of where I was beforehand. It's true. It, it is where we were beforehand. That's, that's primarily what Paul's saying. But isn't it also the theme that we've seen run throughout the whole of the Bible about the whole of humanity in this big story so far? If, you, if you're just joining us here today, this is we're in part 11 of 13 in this series, so if you want to catch up with the rest of it, feel free. Hopefully this will make sense for you on its own as well. You know, but our problems and our enemies are too great for us to handle uh, on our own. And and not just too great. It's not like we, we, we are a downtrodden, oppressed minority who, who you know, would have overcome if we could have. Uh, But we would not have chosen to deal with with these problems on our own. We would have preferred to remain in rebellion against God. Our enemies were just too great for us. And and here's how you'd summarize our enemies and our problems that we've seen so far in the Bible. Uh, Number one, you get in Genesis 3, we saw the the entry of the spiritual enemy of God and God's people. Uh, In fact, the the spiritual enemy of God, God is Satan, isn't he? Like Dad raised just before, the the deceiver, the accuser, the one who prowls around like a hungry lion seeking someone to devour, the one whose personal mission is to oppose God by destroying, get this, you. He's an unnerving type, isn't he? To make you choose to turn away from God and worship instead the things that God created and, and ultimately to worship him. This his desire. You know, it can be weird for us, can't it, to talk about Satan. It feels odd to dive straight into a sermon and begin talk, talking straight away about Satan because we haven't personally really met him, have we? Like, you know, you, you shut your eyes, what are you picturing? You're picturing something from a far side comic or The Simpsons, right? Um, but, but I think if we're honest, most people are aware, at least at some level, that there are forces... In this world that would drive them towards evil and would condemn us uh, but the problem and 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 we can go on to the second part of our problem second part of our enemies here isn't just external is it no Satan is the accuser uh, that's that's what Satan literally means it means the accuser but Satan has something to accuse us of From Genesis 3 onwards, we've seen this progressive picture of humanity as a whole living, diving headlong into this thing that the Bible calls sin. That is choosing to turn away from God. Choosing not to trust that he is good and that his words are good and are truthful. Uh, Choosing to decide what is right for ourselves, to be self-legislators is the word we used back in, in part three of the series. Uh, choosing to choose what is right for ourselves rather than follow what our good creator has told us is good and for our good. And this is a big problem, a big enemy, do you see? Because if, if Satan alone were our enemy, then that would be too much for us personally to deal with. I'm quite convinced of that. But, but at least... At least we'd have the consolation prize, wouldn't we? That we were kind of, we were just the innocent bystanders. We were caught up in the conflict. But what do you do when your greatest enemy is you? Where do you turn when you're the enemy? And we've seen that tension develop throughout the Bible, haven't we, so far? Especially as we've seen Israel, given the law... And given every opportunity uh, to, to, to live, to be, to be blessed by God, to live in relationship with God. But even in the face of such blessing and such opportunities, they've failed again and again in this story so far, haven't they? Like, like read the vast majority of the Old Testament. And it centers around Israel failing to be, live as the people of God. And remember, what we saw is that, is that Israel isn't a chance for us to look and go, oh, we're so much better than them, but a chance for us to look and to see a mirror of all of humanity. Revealing that humanity, even under the best circumstances, given, uh, you know, given everything, uh, given the law, given the blessings of God, given a way to live in connection with God uh, in a limited way, we won't choose the good. Because our sinfulness goes to the depths of who we are. We needed more than the law. We needed a change that goes to the very heart that creates a new person. Uh, And let me ask, isn't isn't this, um, you know, we kind of step from, hey, doesn't Colossians talk about you? But doesn't it also talk about history? But isn't this also our experience of ourselves personally? Let's zoom it back in there, that you have a remarkable, destructive Propensity for wrong, an incredible ability to feed that thing in your life or those things in your life, that addiction which you know is choking your joy, destroying your healthy relationships, marring your conscience. We're we're like, we're we're an awful lot actually. Humanity is, is summed up in some ways by me when I sit in front of a bowl of almonds. Raise your hand if you like almonds. Don't lie, you don't, they're awful. But, but, but you put them in front of me and I can't stop eating the things. I don't know if you've had this experience. It's nuts in general, but almonds in particular. Um, like, like you put me in front of a bowl of almonds. And like, I, actually, I probably enjoy the first three. Um, and then, the, the, how many almonds in a bowl? Like maybe, say 150, and like 150 almonds later, I'm like, please, please move the bowl. Move it, help! Um, like, it, it, I can't help myself. If you want to... Yeah, you just, just discovered my great weakness. Um, but isn't that like us? You know, we know good. In some sense, all of us know what is good, and yet we choose wrong. Um, yeah. Isn't it like that with sin? And then, of course, to cap off kind of the triad of our enemies... Uh, and problems you have this thing called death, which which has come up already today, funnily enough. Death really is is summarized we could say as the judgment of God on our sin. it is the outpouring of his just wrath against humanity against sinners, and when we talk about death we 're not just talking about that physical death which everyone does face. Uh, The Bible actually speaks about death in, in, I think, three ways. All of them an outpouring of justice on sin. First, there is physical death. Physical death is a thing uh, created to live forever. We are destined, each one of us, to die and to return to the dust. And we all live with the innate knowledge that this isn't how it was supposed to be, don't we? You ever notice that? Like, when you sit at the bedside, I think you basically said this before. We, everyone, everyone's quiet and everyone's upset because we know this isn't how it's supposed to go. We have this built into us that eternity was meant to be part of it, and yet we die. You know, so much of our culture is built around avoiding the reality of death. Why do people in nursing homes not get visited very much on the whole? Seriously, like, this is a thing. I'm a nurse, trust me. Um, because we don't like death. And nursing homes remind us of that reality that will come for us all. Um, most, most people actually live kind of like death is real, but not for me. You know, it's, it's, it's the thing, thing that happens to other people. It's like teenagers and car accidents. You know, um, Actually, that's a perfect example of this, isn't it? And when we're confronted with the reality, it, it does tend to break us. But then there is this spiritual death uh, as well. Since the, since the fall, um, it has been true of everyone uh, from the beginning of their life. Uh, since we left Eden, we have lived under spiritual death the death that is separation from relationship with our maker. And you would say that this is actually the greater of the two deaths, actually, biblically speaking and and factually. And if we saw it rightly, we would agree. If we knew what it means to be in relationship with God, we would consider spiritual death to be a greater burden than a physical death, I think. We were created for this deep, deep joy. We were created to experience that in his presence, the peace of perfect life with him, the, the spiritual life that flows uh, out of, of, of um, choosing the good, you know, and, and living with him and having him there, or rather, choosing the good flows out of that spiritual life. Um, all of that is absent in our natural human state because we are spiritually dead. The Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses, dead in our sin. It doesn't just speak of death as a future reality. It speaks of it as a present reality for those outside of Christ. It says the wages of sin is death. And then finally, the Bible, mostly in, in the book of Revelation, we get this picture, although elsewhere also it speaks of a second death, a, an eternal death that comes after this life. We heard it summarised in the word Hell. Before, And so we lived in this spiritual death, separated from the true life with God and, and really just waiting for our physical reality to catch up with our spiritual reality. For physical death to come and match our spiritual death and then to face the final death, the judgment of God upon us. Our enemies were greater than we can handle, weren't they? And we sat willfully, guiltily under them. But last week we reached what we called the game changer moment in the story—the incarnation. Really, not just a moment, but a new reality which continues even to this day. God with us, to save us. It's what we saw in Matthew one. God came down as a man, the God-Man, Jesus. We've we've got one book with one hero, and here uh, one story, and here comes the one hero. Really, he's, he's always been there. God has always been active. But when Jesus comes, it is God incarnate to save us, God with us to save us. As we said last week, the incarnation is the context of the fulfillment of all of God's promises. But the incarnation alone, the coming of Jesus alone, is not enough. It's not enough that God would come down and be with us Because our sin still stood in the way. Our enemies still stood, even if Jesus came down as a man, right? There was still a price to pay. And the whole story's been swelling and rising to this moment. If God had left the price undealt with, then that would not be good or wouldn't be just. You know, really, that's what we see when Satan's tempting Jesus in the wilderness. He tempts him with, with rule over the whole world and with with a world where he's not going to be harmed and, and, and what he's tempting him is, is have what you want, have what you came for in a sense, but do it my way in a way that doesn't deal with their sin. Bypass the cross, avoid the pain and the shame. But no, the, in, the incarnation is the context, but the promises of God are ultimately fulfilled in the great work that Jesus did. And as we look at the great work of Jesus, our hero, we see the truth of the matter. We, we couldn't deal with our enemies, with Satan, with sin, with death. Uh, we couldn't make it right with God and restore the relationship with our Creator. But Jesus is the hero at the center of the great story, and He can. Here's the moment of redemption, right? Really the center of the whole Bible story summed up in one little line by Paul here in Colossians. Paul takes our sin, which is the grounds for Satan accusing us and the cause of our death. The reason we are under God's judgment and that the whole creation is cursed. And he says, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Over in in, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, Paul writes, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He made Jesus to be sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God himself. God as a man didn't just come down for us, but went to be judged for us, to carry it all for us. Jesus was beaten, was mocked, was scorned, was whipped and crucified to save us, to save you. Jesus carried the weight of God's wrath against sin so that redemption might come. And God's ultimately, the whole of God's creation might be delivered. in in john's gospel we read the final words of jesus so important that we remember this isn't just some point of theology right this is this is the truth by which we're saved and this is our savior who physically went and did this he goes to the cross and he's nailed there and to the last he's doing these two things he's fulfilling the scriptures Uh, he's fulfilling what was promised what was hoped for throughout the whole Old Testament. Twice in, in just the crucifixion narrative, understand, John explicitly points out how Jesus, you know, this was to fulfill what was written. But also he's, he's loving his people. I love the detail that we get in John's gospel with the cross. Uh, even, even as he hangs from the cross and carries God's judgment for all of us. You know, imagine the weight we get one of the most striking moments in the crucifixion narrative. Jesus looks down, carrying our sin, bearing the judgment, nailed to a cross. He looks down and he sees Mary, uh, the woman who bore him into this world. And he sees his disciple, John, and he says to Mary, behold your son. And he says to John, behold your mother. He's, He's providing for a mother who is now deprived of her son. He's providing for, for her even as he carries her sins to the grave. He tenderly loves us personally. And then his final words are, it is finished. But do you see, just like the incarnation, the, the coming of God with us to save us, uh, isn't just a thing that happened out of the blue in a vacuum the centre of the incarnation, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the great fulfilment of what had been promised and patterned beforehand in the Old Testament. When Jesus says it is finished, he indicated that the great work which had been uh, awaited for all of the years was finished. As Jesus dies and as Jesus then rises... He defeats the power of Satan over us that has stood since the beginning. And so he fulfills the promise made to, to Eve in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 that her descendant will crush the head of the serpent even as he is, his heel is bruised by the serpent. That He will defeat Satan at a great cost to himself. As Jesus' blood brings forgiveness for many and restores God's people into a right relationship with him, the the promise to Abraham that through his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed is fulfilled. As Jesus rises, as Jesus ascends to reign as king forever, the promise to David that his descendant uh, would reign on an eternal throne is fulfilled. And there are so many types, so many patterns in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus' death and his resurrection. But let's let's focus in on perhaps the most regular kind of repeating pattern that we have seen as we've gone through the Old Testament. This should sound familiar if you've been with us through the series. We've seen again and again the pattern of moments of judgment mixed with mercy. Haven't we? Does that sound familiar? Anyone? Come on. Not at me even if you're lying. No, no, don't. Um, we saw this at the exile, right? When, when even as God sends his people into exile from the land, he promises a restoration. He promises mercy, that, a restoration that will outstrip the former glory of Israel infinitely. Judgment and mercy side by side poured out together we see it every time that a sacrifice is required in the old testament don't we uh to to maintain the relationship with god you know whether that be the old repeated sacrifices of the temple and the tabernacle system uh the worship in the old testament uh, which, which allowed them to live in that special relationship that special connection with god or whether it be the sacrifices that abraham Uh, and and had to offer when when God made the covenant with him in Genesis chapter 15, or even the animals that God himself killed to clothe Adam and Eve way back in in Genesis chapter 3. These are moments of judgment where judgment is poured out as an act of mercy towards God's people. The judgment falls on the animal so that God's people can be free. Perhaps the key moment that we saw this in the Old Testament was was when Eric preached for us on the Passover there, where God's judgment was poured out on Egypt. And and the implication is that the same judgment would have been poured out on Israel because they were equally deserving of it as fellow sinners. But God told them, slaughter a lamb and, and, and put its blood on the doorposts and you will not be judged, your firstborns will not die. Uh, the blood of the lamb would be the great sign which would cause the, the destruction to pass over them, hence the name. Judgment mixed with mercy towards God's people. And now Jesus goes to the cross and the pattern is fulfilled. It's perfected. John the Baptist, he said, uh, when, he, when he saw Jesus at the beginning of John's gospel, he says, Oh, behold, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now now the Lamb's blood is spilled so that we can be passed over, so that we can be free of judgment and free of sin and free of Satan. God's wrath, His judgment against His people's sin is poured out to the last drop and yet it falls not on our heads but on our sacrificial lamb jesus isn't our god amazing the greatest outpouring of judgment is also the greatest outpouring of mercy because he takes our judgment for us to overcome my sin our sin to defeat the claim of satan and death over all who will believe. To bring us back into relationship with God and ultimately to bring us back into the presence of God. Notice back in our, our passage in Colossians, okay, stick with us here, what, what's achieved by the work of Jesus. Paul says, He has forgiven all our trespasses by nailing them to the cross, all of the sin that held us down, defeated in Jesus believe it it's such a such a hard reality for us to accept sometimes isn't it that in Jesus i am fully forgiven even even on my worst day even when i fail to follow him if i have put my trust in him if you've put your trust in jesus and called on his name to save, then then your sins, they are dealt with. Past, present, future. That has a flow and effect, do you see? Because because our sins are defeated, we are made alive, Paul says. Our death is defeated. Spiritual death is not the reality. Not the reality... um, in, for those who are now in Jesus, for a follower of Jesus. And, and physical death, along with eternal death, will not have the last say for us. He has given us life. And it will be forever life. I can't get my head around that. I know we say it literally all of the time as Christians, hopefully. But like, I think we're going to get there and we're going to be like, oh, that's what it meant. And then like a thousand years later, we'll be like, oh, no, that's what it meant. And we'll probably just do that again and again for all of eternity. Um, A thousand. And we we can know that this life will be ours because we know that Jesus rose to new life. His life is the assurance of our life, our new life. Because he has risen, he has gone into heaven and promised life to us. A man has gone ahead of us. We can know that we will receive it also if we have trusted in that man. The New Testament uses a number of words to express what, what all this uh, means for those who have received the redeeming work of Jesus. Here's, here's just two that, that, that I... Adore and want to pass on to you. First, you might remember we've said a few times that experiences, the experiences of Israel in the Old Testament demonstrate that we needed a change that went deeper. Right? We've said that today. The Bible uh, tells us, though, in Second Corinthians chapter five, again actually, that that if anyone is in Christ, if you've trusted in Him, He, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away, the new has come. You know, when you believed in Jesus, you became a, a, a new person. You know, the, the, the Sarah McIntosh who existed before, sorry Sarah, who before, not really sorry, before she believed is not the same Sarah McIntosh who sits before us today. She is a new creation, a new person. You know, when a, when a person puts their trust in Jesus, they turn from their sin. When, when they do that, you become a new person, is the way the Bible talks about it. This is so hard to get your head around in some ways because, you know, I mean, look at it, look at Nicodemus. He was like a leader of the law and a smart guy. And Jesus says, you must be born again and born of the Spirit to be to be uh, saved, uh, to be the people of God. And and Nicodemus goes, what, that doesn't make sense. How can I go back inside? And then like, um, but it's true, we become a new creation in Jesus. The old is gone, the new has come. You know, it's one of the things, one of the things that we symbolize, that we picture when we baptize a person, it symbolizes going down into death with Jesus and rising up as a new person, a new life with him. Second picture. The Bible says that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. When we trust his redeeming work, undoes the brokenness that separated us from God. Do you remember, if you've been with us in this series, do you remember, if you haven't, I'll explain it anyway, uh, way back in, in Genesis chapter 1, we saw that we were created in the image of God and that, that at the root of what that means is that we were created with an identity of sonship with God. Yeah, not It's not just the men. This is a, a relational term of, of we were the the children of God, the sons of of God. But we lost that at the fall, didn't we? We ceased to be the image bearers in, in that sense. We ceased to be the perfect image of the Son of God. But now the Son, Jesus, the true Son, the good Son, comes and he dies and he rises for us. And in him we are redeemed. We become adopted, it says. We become children of God. You know, we, we have to say this isn't just a personal saving work that Jesus has achieved. We've, we've read here about the flow-on effect of how of, of the work that Jesus does because of our sin is defeated, our death is defeated, but, but what about Satan, right? Do we, do we get anything about Satan here? Like, if he's not dealt with, surely this can all just happen again. And the passage says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Jesus, that is. The spiritual powers that opposed God, most significantly Satan, were defeated at the cross of Jesus. He triumphed over them. And when he rose again, he triumphed over them. The way that the descendant of Eve crushes the head of the serpent is by defeating the sin that gave him power over God's people. The victory of Jesus over the sin of God's people is a cosmic victory, do you see, as well as a personal one. It's a victory which, as as we'll see in the final weeks of this series, it has implications for the whole creation It has implications for for everything around you today and everything in this whole world and everything in the universe. But but today I want to close on on a note of invitation. I want to invite you into trusting the Saviour, the Redeemer today. The Redeemer of the creation and of your soul. The Redeemer of all who trust in Him. You might say, Well, John, I'm a Christian. I don't know who I'm trying to be there. Um, I've, already ter- I've already trusted in Jesus. What are you talking about? Um, and that may well be true, but trust in Jesus isn't a moment, it's a lifetime. Trust in Jesus is something we live in. If we have trusted in Him, we go on trusting Him more. We become like the man in, in I think, Mark's gospel who says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. We want to grow in trusting, grow in believing. Last week, we said that the incarnation was like a, a marriage uh, rather than a wedding. Right? There, there's the moment when it started, when Jesus came down, but the reality continues as long as he is a man. And so it continues today. But the same metaphor works uh, really well for what it means to trust in Jesus. There is a start to it. There is. There is that wedding moment that you come to faith in him. There is the joy of something new coming about where it wasn't before. And if that's you, I'm inviting you. If you haven't had that moment, I'm inviting you to trust in the Savior today. I'm inviting you into that new creation, that adoption, that joy of knowing the Savior. The wondrous mystery of salvation is an invitation to you today the experience of the reality that he took your sins on himself and made you his child so that you can have life, his life. But if you've trusted him, when you've trusted him, your life, your everyday is to be an ongoing experience of learning to trust him more. Uh, this This is where our joy is as a people. This is where the only great joy is in this world, I'm convinced. An experience of turning again and again to the cross and to the empty tomb and remembering this is the place where your your peace is. This is the place where your redemption is, where your actions are being transformed, where your life is becoming more like his life. This is the place where your hope, your joy and your eternity is. And so together, as the people of God, we need to spend our lives recognizing where we've sought to trust in other things. And, and, and we need to place our trust in the finished work of Jesus instead. You know, aren't, aren't we prone to going to other things? If you, if you don't, if, if you're like, oh, this seems a bit conceptual, John. Um, that was it, Flying Overheads. Um, you know, think about your day-to-day. Think about the things where you go to find peace. Think about the things where you go to find rest. And if you go, yeah, well, but I find all of my peace and all of my rest in, in Jesus, John, then repent of pride and we'll move on, okay? Um, like, I mean, or become the pastor, either way. Um, because, like, like seriously, like, as, as recently as 24 hours ago, this is something that I had to struggle with again. And it's something we should ongoingly, not struggle, we should, we should step into, joyfully, the conviction of where we haven't trusted in him, where we can trust him more, where, we, where we've been going to other things for our peace, for our rest, for our joy, for our hope, for, to get us through, and, and we can go, no, Jesus is better. You know, this, this might be a good thing, this might be a thing that I can enjoy as an act of worship towards him, but I've been going to it, seeking it to be my fulfillment, and, and I need to turn away from that and, and trust instead in my great Redeemer. If that's, if that's something you want to talk to someone about afterwards, please come, come and have a chat to me. We can pray together. We can be open with each other. You, there's, there's nothing to hide. God's not here to shame you. He's here to redeem you. He demonstrated it by sending his son to die for you. This is what I want to invite us into today, a renewed trust in him. A turning and saying, I've trusted in you. I want to trust you more. Let's bow our heads. Let's let's pray together. I wanna I wanna come before you, Lord. And we wanna come before you. And we're gonna we're gonna have a moment of collective confession here. And there is great. Great peace in confession for God's people, because we know our sins are dealt with. So we come before you and we say, Lord, we haven't trusted. Not rightly, not fully. Never for a day have we gone and and trusted you perfectly. Lord, we confess our sin. I wanna I want to pray for my brothers and sisters here and for myself that you would open our eyes to the places where we turn to lesser glories, to lesser joys, to things that are less than your cross and your empty tomb, when we turn to them for our peace and for our joy and for our hope, for our redemption. I want to pray that you would open our eyes to them now, open our hearts to see. And as we see them, Lord, we we turn and we offer them to you because you're our redeemer. You're our hope. You're our joy. You're our king. You sit enthroned over all eternity. We don't want our eyes set on this world. We want our eyes set on you. We want our hearts to be fixed on you and living in the reality of your reign and of your, your finished work for us and longing for the day of your return and letting those realities orient who we are right now. It's what we want, Lord. So we pray that you would do it in us now and do it in us. Lead us to trust more and more day by day in the redeeming work of Jesus. Amen.